Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. We're so glad that you joined us today. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and today's message is from our series in Acts title continuation. Today, Don Bauman is going to be teaching from Acts chapter 26, and in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at how God turned challenges in Paul's ministry into opportunities for him to compassionately share the gospel with some pretty powerful people. Now, as we listen to this episode, be encouraged to consider what audience you might have in your life that you could potentially share the gospel with. Also consider what you might need in order to communicate God's word with them in a way that they can understand and how you can do so with the same kind of compassion that Paul examples in his ministry. With that, let's open up our Bibles and join Don in Acts chapter 26. Morning. And uh, great to be invited back as a guest teacher. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm still in shock <laughs> over uh, last Saturday, two Saturdays ago, uh, one Saturday ago. Um, yeah, it, it was overwhelming. And uh, from my perspective, it was overwhelming and so much fun. And uh, I, I think everybody there had fun. Uh, the, the, um, I don't think you realized until then that you had such a talented staff that could, uh, that could perform so well. Uh, If it was me, I would insist that all of them, all of them, especially the men, get back up and do another number in song together sometime soon because they showed that they could do it, right? And one of the hardest things about retirement for me has been convincing Joel Berger that I didn't die, that I only retired. But... um, no, your just your kindness and generosity and love is simply overwhelming. It was an experience of a lifetime, and thank you. Um, That was an experience of a lifetime. Today we're going to be looking at an opportunity of a lifetime. And we've all had them, right? Opportunities of a lifetime uh, come along rarely, right? Uh, That's what makes them so special. Think of the time that you met your spouse if you're married, right? Uh, Or the time that you got a, a job that you really enjoyed. I remember in the spring of 2001 when I was uh, invited to join the staff here. That was a, a decision that changed the course of my life in a very good way. Um, now, we, we expect those to come along seldom, uh, but we expect them to show up in a good way. But we don't expect opportunities of a lifetime to show up uh, through unfair treatment and um, you know, that kind of thing. But that's exactly what's happened to the Apostle Paul. He gets the opportunity in the passage today in Acts chapter 26 to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the highest government officials of his day under Caesar. And he got that opportunity through uh, a string of unfair imprisonments, Real conspiracies, not fake ones or theories. They were the real thing. Accusations, plots against his life. You know, we don't expect that to be the route for the opportunity of a lifetime, but it was for him. In fact, it not only was an opportunity of a lifetime, but it was the chance for him to fulfill his calling. 
Think of what Ananias, that man in Damascus who was told to go speak with Saul, that violent persecutor of Christians who had just seen Jesus. And he said, uh, 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 no, not me. Uh, and, and the Lord said to him in Acts 9, go, go. For this man, Saul, is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Opportunities and suffering sometimes go together, and that's part of, yeah, we don't want to hear that so much. Uh, but Paul is a good example of that. Now, the, what we're going to, this chapter takes place in the uh, palace, the Roman palace at Caesarea. That's on the Mediterranean coast of, of Israel uh, with the, the royal guests gathered. It's a big deal. So before we look at that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, this is all about sharing about you and hearing the good news of Jesus. And uh, we think of the, the people, the person who shared you with us. And Lord, we, we are in awe that you choose that method. You choose to have us share our story of a changed life along with your word as the way for people to come to faith in you. So might we be inspired and encouraged by Paul's example today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we get into the chapter, we want to kind of hit, uh, rewind, and, and kind of look at how we got, how Paul got to where he is today in this palace in Caesarea with all these, all this royalty gathered. Now, uh, Paul, um, after his conversion, he, you know, and he, he had years to grow up and mature by himself. Uh, then he went on missionary journeys. First, he, he spoke to uh, Jewish people, and then and he spoke to Hellenists. That would be uh, Greeks who were also Jews. And then he spoke to Gentiles, people that had no connection at all to Israel. And he went on two missionary journeys around the Mediterranean uh, region. Uh, but always he had this desire to go back and share with the Jews that he had, that he'd grown up with, that he'd worked with, that he, he loved. And they just... They, they hated Jesus and he wanted to, he just had a burden. Now, from Acts 21 on, there was two things going on. Actually, from Acts 20 on, uh, Paul had this burden and yet he was being warned. Uh, you go there, you're going to have trouble. But yet he couldn't, he, he just had to go. It's funny that the spirit would do two seemingly opposite things at the same time. You know, compel him to go and yet warn him, uh, this is not going to be easy. And again, for us, the example, danger should not stop us. You know, we don't want to be fools and just run headlong uh, naively into danger. But danger sometimes accompanies opportunities to share Jesus 
and, and he'll be with us through them. So uh, anyway, Paul arrives in Acts 21. He worships in the temple and he's immediately falsely accused of uh, desecrating the temple and, and a mob attacks him and starts to beat him up. And they would have beaten him to death had not uh, a, a Roman uh, commander intervened, pulled him out of that mess. And then in Acts 22 and 23, we see Paul's first opportunity to share to the uh, Sanhedrin. Those were his former employers, right? And he escapes judgment there when the Pharisees and Sadducees get into a big argument. And so um, in, in the ancient world and around most of the world today, a person is guilty until proven innocent. And that's the way it was with Paul. In fact, he was ready to be flogged by a Roman officer when he, when he said, um, I'm a Roman citizen and it's illegal to flog me. And, and at the same time, they found out about a plot, a real plot to assassinate Paul when he moved to point A to point B the next day. So he ended up in Caesarea. He went from Jerusalem to Caesarea and there he's been in prison for a while. And he had a hearing in Acts 24 before Felix, the governor, and Felix says, you're innocent, and to reward Paul, he got to stay in prison for two more years, right? Uh, and, and so Festus took over Felix's position, and one of the first things he does is go right to Caesarea because he wants to hear this guy Paul, uh, about with whom the whole world is in an uproar. Uh, Herod Agrippa shows up along with his sister Bernice, and they have this big, big royal to-do, and everybody's gathered. It's kind of like a little three-ring circus, and Paul is the main attraction. And so that's what's going to happen. Now, uh, the people, the royalty that are there, uh, Festus is the new governor of Judea. Now he's holding the position that Pontius Pilate once held. Agrippa is Herod Agrippa II. He's about 30 years old, and he, he comes from a long... Um, not so savory line of Herods. Okay, uh, his uh, great grandfather was the guy who tried to kill Jesus at birth. His grandfather was the one who beheaded John the Baptist. His dad was the one who arrested the apostle Peter and killed the apostle James and who was struck by God when he received worship as a God. You, would, you know, so Paul probably wasn't look, looking forward to a warm reception from Herod Agrippa. And Bernice is Herod's sister. A uh, younger sister about whom an R-rated movie could be made, and I'm glad that it hasn't been. Uh, she was married at age 13 and, and widowed twice by age 20. Now, her second husband, who happened to be her uncle, uh, he, he was king of this area called Calcis, which is an area in the Bekaa Valley uh, just east of Beirut, the modern Beirut, and so that means it was the area that we visited back in 2018 and 19. And uh, so when he died, she was queen of this area and that kingdom, that little tiny kingdom was given to her brother. And brother moved into the palace and then they got into this weird sexual thing
thing, ugh, it's disgusting. It was, it was wrong even by Rome's rock-bottom moral standards at the time. But Agrippa is familiar with the Jewish customs. He was in charge of the temple treasury. He got to appoint the high priest. And so uh, Festus needed help because Paul had appealed to Caesar, and he says, fine, except I don't know what to charge this guy with. You know, I've never sent someone who's innocent to Caesar before. So um, Agrippa, help me out. Uh, and so that's where we begin in uh, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 26. Agrippa said to Paul, it is permitted for you to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand. That would be like the equivalent of walking up to a podium or tapping a mic today. And began his defense. I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that today I'm going to make a defense before you about everything I'm accused of by the Jews, especially since you're an expert in all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, uh, Paul... Uh, Agrippa gives Paul permission to speak, and he does. And, and Paul begins what he calls his defense. It's the uh, word from which we get apology. It, it means a reasonable explanation of his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here's something to consider. We, we live in an age where impulsive speech is really trendy. Right? Uh, you know, somebody, something happens or somebody says something on social media and then uh, you can post anything, anything, no matter how outrageous or mean-spirited or cruel and, and you've got an audience immediately. You might even have a dozen likes just like that. Uh, a, a defense is the opposite of impulsive speech. It's reasonable explanation for our faith in Jesus. And it, that's where we ought to land and kind of avoid that, um, that impulsive behavior in speech that's so common today. And Paul shows he's, courte he cur he's courteous. He knows kind of the rules of the road. He knows how to speak in a situation like this. He, he doesn't, though, engage in the flattery that was so common uh, uh, in speeches at that day. He, he's, he's polite, but he's not uh, flattering. And he focuses his attention on Agrippa because he knows the most about uh, the Jews. And it's clear that he knows his audience. It'll become even more clear as he goes on. And, and we ought to be thinking, who are our audiences that we can share Jesus with? Who are the people in our family, in our neighborhood, in our, our place of work? Uh, who are the people groups that we have a heart for? You may have a heart for people that you've never even met. And it's Paul models what it's like to really know the people that you're speaking with and tailor the presentation of the gospel uh, in a way, not, not change the content, but change the way that you present the gospel so that they hear it and can react. Let's take a look as he begins in, in verse 4. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. 
They had previously known me for quite some time, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I'm being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself supposed it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In all the synagogues, I often tried to make them blaspheme by punishing them. I even pursued them to foreign cities since I was greatly enraged at them. Now, Paul's defense was pretty straightforward. He, he told his own story and how God had changed his life and how God had fulfilled his promises throughout the Old Testament in Jesus Christ. And he begins with his personal history because many in the audience knew him. In fact, you could just imagine as he's speaking to different groups in the audience, you could just imagine him looking at them and connecting with them as he speaks. And uh, he's saying, you know, you know me. Uh, I, I grew up in this Jewish home in Tarsus and I was educated in Jerusalem. Uh, I was educated as a Pharisee under the Rabbi Gamaliel. And uh, he began with statements that were non-controversial. Everyone could agree with them. And then he moved to uh, more difficult, more controversial stuff. He didn't lose his audience right away. And in verse 6 and 7, Paul says, I'm not being charged as a criminal. Instead, I am being charged for the hope of the promise made to God to our, made by God to our fathers. Now, he just piques the interest of the people who are listening, and he doesn't explain himself completely until the end of his message, and he doesn't take the attention of the people he's speaking to for granted. Now, Paul refers to the nature of his hope in his first controversial statement in verse 8. Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, a personal response to the resurrection is at the heart of Paul's defense and the heart of our response to the gospel. But he knew that the resurrection would be a foreign concept to many, especially to Festus. So he just, he just makes that statement and just leaves it hanging there so that they can start mulling it over and he will refer back to it later. Asking good questions is a real critical skill to presenting the gospel in a thoughtful way because faith in Jesus is an individual matter. It, it, people are persuaded but not argued into faith in Jesus. That's important to remember. They are not argued. Okay? We don't... Our, our calling is not to win an argument. It's to present the reasons for our faith, our apology. And so we present that along with a life that is being 
transformed being, okay? We never, never, never arrive until we're in Jesus' presence. There are always rough edges that are being knocked off. God is knocking rough edges off of me continually, and that will, that will be an ongoing process. Um, one of the many uh, tricks for which Christians are known, I call them stupid Christian tricks, is arrogance, right? Oh, I've arrived. Sorry for you. Uh, that's not the way the gospel is to be presented at all. Instead, it's, okay, here's the truth of, of God's word along with, this is what God is doing in my life. He's done this so far and he's got a whole lot more work to do. But I'm still trusting him. Both those things go together. And uh, Paul says, hey, I was skeptical. I was more than skeptical when I first heard about the resurrection. In fact, I thought it was a bunch of baloney. And it was a, a, a weird belief that needed to be snuffed out. And, and he put his money where his mouth was. He was known as a persecutor. And he went at it. Full bore, okay? Uh, he, remember, he was a Pharisee, but yet he had authority from the chief priests. They were Sadducees. Now, Pharisees and Sadducees never got along. Never, except for one time. Persecution of Christians. They were on the same page there. And so Paul had the legal authority to persecute Christians, and he went at it. It said in, in verse 11, uh, he tried to make... Believers blaspheme by beating them up. Okay? Uh, I'm reminded of, of the fate of many um, Muslims who come to faith in Christ. That's what they face instantly. And Paul said, I did that. And I, you know, I cast my vote against Christians when they were condemned. He, he was there. He, he wasn't part of the Sanhedrin, but he, he said, I, I was all for Stephen being stoned to death. And, and he said he was enraged. There was this spiritual, uh, inexplicable rage that dominated his life. He said, that's who I was. Until this happened. Beginning in verse 12. I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priests. King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice speaking to me in the Hebrew language. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and what I will reveal to you. I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles. I now send you to them to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that by faith in me they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. Now, the 
the microsecond before Jesus appeared to Saul. Here he was. He was riding to Damascus. He had these official letters. He, he had that rage that just animated him. And uh, again, you could just picture him. You know, I'm, he's talking about the chief priest. And he's looking at their representative. And, and, and he's, he is sharing his story. And, and then he shares what happened next. And he focuses on Agrippa. He says, you know, it was noontime, but there was a light brighter than the sun that surrounded not only me, but all who were traveling with me. I have witnesses. They can corroborate what I'm saying. I'm not making this up. And he heard a voice speaking to him in Aramaic. It's referred to here as the Hebrew language. Aramaic was the language that was commonly used in Israel at the time. And Paul reveals details about, his, uh, about what Jesus said to him here that he hasn't revealed anywhere else up to this point. And, and Jesus uses a, a very common proverb when he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, the proverb was a little story. You could picture it as a children's story about a stubborn ox who wouldn't go where his master wanted him to. And the, the steering tool for oxen was a cattle prod, right? Or a goad, uh, similar to cattle prods today, only without the electricity, uh, had a metal point. And the story went that this ox would kick. You know, it was stubborn, and it was kicking. And the more it kicked, the more it got prodded. So the more pain it received. In other words, kids, do what your mom and dad say, right? Uh, so um, Jesus is kind of saying the same thing to Paul. Um, get the point yet? And <laughs> you may or may not have had the cattle prod used on you. I know <laughs> God's broken it out more than once on me. Uh, he uses it when either we're ignoring him or just flat out disobeying him, right? And he does it because he loves us. He wants to get our attention and then, then we can get down to business, just like he does here with, uh, with Saul. And uh, Saul, he recognizes this as God, but he, he asks his name and he says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Notice how Jesus identifies with those who are suffering for his name. Same thing today. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 25, whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. Jesus identifies with those who suffer for the sake of his name. And um, once Jesus has Paul's attention in 16 through 18, now he gets down to business. He, he, he tells Saul, stand up and uh, listen to your new marching oil orders. Uh, you... Are Saul the persecutor? You are going to be changed into Paul, the servant and witness of Jesus. Now, the word servant that's used here is a really interesting term. It's actually a nautical term describing the guys, the slaves, who rowed the boat. Now, this wasn't like a crew team. They were under the deck of the boat. And you could just imagine how hot and smelly that was. But uh, they were rowing the boat, and that's, where the, the, that's what powered most of the boats in the Middle East at that time. Paul was going to go from being captain of his ship, right? He was calling the shots. He was setting the course. Now he's an under rower. Jesus is the captain. 
Jesus sets the direction and he's going to expend his life in service to him. And um, that's our calling too. And Jesus wants us to respond and let him set the direction for our lives. And he just liked to do it without prodding us, right? And I think that's when we experience joy is when we willingly follow Jesus and he doesn't have to break out that cattle prod, although he will if he needs to, right? And um, Paul's new mission involves being rescued from the very people that he's going to serve. Interesting. Now, the presence of danger, um, when that pops up, that's often a deal breaker for us in terms of serving Jesus. Now, again, we're not to rush foolishly into danger, but danger, the presence of danger is an opportunity to trust God even more. And I think of examples uh, uh, that I, I've met. One is a young guy, I'll change his name, uh, to Abdul. He, he lives in Lebanon. You meet him, he's just just normal guy, right? He's got a wife, young kids, just wonderful guy. He has a passion to share Jesus with Muslims. As a result, he has been beaten up on at least two occasions that I'm aware of, one severely enough to end up in the hospital for several days. But he's unstoppable. It doesn't stop him. He recovers, he gets back on his feet, and he goes right back at it. And, and he's just following his calling, uh, similar to what uh, the Apostle Paul is doing here. And then Jesus explains the reason why each one of us desperately need the gospel and why others need the gospel. Our eyes were blind. We had no spiritual perception at all. We lived in darkness. And that darkness is the absence of God. He was not there at all. And that also means the presence of Satan. That fallen angel who has declared war against God. And, and so when faith in Jesus opens our eyes, now we can see. And we move from darkness into the light of God. At that same moment, our sins are forgiven. Our nature as sinners are changed. And we are given an eternal inheritance. Now that good news, all of that is wrapped up in our life story. It's wrapped, it's a very personal thing. It's part of our autobiography once we've believed in Jesus. And we get to share that. We get to share the reality of a life that has been changed by Jesus and is continually being transformed by him. Have you thought of your story? Of how God has worked in your life up to today? How he is continuing to work in your life. Because that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to share that with other people, with our audience, with people that, that we already know, with people that we want to share Jesus with. Yeah. And um, people desperately, desperately need to hear the gospel. They need to know that there is someone that they can trust and follow. And, and you, we see it all around us. They are trusting and following weird stuff. And they need to hear G about Jesus. 
Paul finishes up what he's saying in 19 through 23. Therefore, King Agrippa, I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first, and then to those in Jerusalem, and in all the region of Judea, and to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple complex and were trying to kill me. To this very day, I have obtained help that comes from God. And I stand and testify to both small and great, saying, that no saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place that the Messiah must suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, Saul is a guy that converts uh, ideas into action really fast, and, and he responded quickly to Jesus' intervention in his life. He, he preached in Damascus, and remember, he got into trouble right away. Then there was that, that intervening time, and it, it isn't written in Acts, but he spent years off in the Arabian desert learning, getting the rough edges chiseled off, and, and then God could use him. And he had gone on those mission trips, and, and, uh, and Paul explains in verse 20, here is how to respond to the good news of Jesus. Repent. That means I'm in charge. I'm captain of my ship. I know where I'm going. Whoa. Was I ever wrong? I'm, I'm heading toward Jesus. Jesus, you are the captain now. I am the under rower of my life. And he says, do works worthy of repentance. Uh, again, none of us, sometimes we think, oh, well, I've got this flaw, this flaw, this flaw. I, I, I can't share Jesus with anyone. That's your qualification. God's at work in your life. We never arrive. But God is changing us. And you have a story of how God has changed you already and how he still needs to change you. And that's something to which everyone can relate. What did repentance look like for you? For me, it looked like uh, a whole lot of apologies. A whole lot of asking for forgiveness. Making amends to some people I'd wronged. Uh, writing some uncomfortable letters and having uncomfortable conversations. And it was a chance to live out the reality that I no longer serve sin. And it is a deterrent, even to this day, for going back. Because the temptation is always there. To Okay, I can follow those same impulses because the impulses remain. Because we're still in this body. But that repentance is a chance for God to draw that line in my life and say, uh-uh, I am a new person. I am not going back there anymore. And in verse 21, Paul speaks of the motive of the, the folks who almost beat him to death. They were reacting to the message that he was proclaiming. And if anyone reacts to us negatively, it should be that for the same reasons, to the message of Jesus, not because of our bad behavior or our impulsive words, right? We, we okay, here's what God's word says. Here's how God's changing me. There it is. Okay? And in verse 22, Paul says, Time and again, I've escaped disaster with help that could only come from God. And I am here 
speaking to you, I'll speak to nobodies, I'll speak to kings. It doesn't matter. Uh, the content of what Paul says doesn't change, but how he presents the gospel does. Because he's aware of his audience, as we should be as well. And he says, you know, the content is nothing radical or new. It's what Moses and the prophets have said. And he summarizes the gospel in the Old Testament in verse 23. And I've written some verses here. You might want to write some down to read on your own later. First is the Messiah must suffer. Jews of Jesus' day were looking for a political deliverer and not a suffering savior. But the scriptures talk about the Messiah who would suffer. And then the Messiah would be the first one to rise from the dead. The resurrection permeates the Old Testament. Remember, when Jesus says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. The resurrection is, is uh, key to the gospel, and the Messiah would proclaim light to Israel and the nation. Not just the Jewish people would know about Jesus as their Messiah, but... All nations would know about Jesus as Lord. And that is still going on to this day. And here, in verses 24 through the end, his audience reacts. As he was making his defense this way, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, You're out of your mind, Paul! Too much study is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters. It's actually to him that I'm speaking boldly. For I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his notice since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. So the king, the governor, Bernice, and those sitting with him got up, and when they had left, they talked with each other and said, this man is doing nothing that deserves death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. <clears throat> now, Festus interrupts Paul, and just the whole place is, is, is made silent as he, as he shouts out, you're a, uh, literally, you're a maniac. Now, he didn't break into song when he did that. Um, <laughs> But think of, your, think of your favorite idiom, right? Your, your Looney Tunes, your nuttier than a fruitcake, whatever. Whatever your favorite idiom is, that's what Festus is saying. And this is a response of, the, of a Gentile who doesn't know the scripture. You know, this talk about visions and resurrection, it, it sounded like uh, the ravings of a madman, not reality. Now, Paul isn't rattled by this. Again, he's, you know, he's Herod with all this horrible family history, and here's Festus, you know, and they could, they could sentence him to death just like that. And he isn't, he isn't rattled. 
You know, there's that proverb that says, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And that's part of the help that Paul is receiving from God. And, he's, and instead he says, no, uh, the words that I speak and the word that he uses for speak is to declare wisdom like a, a Greek philosopher would, or like a prophet. And so again, he shows that he knows his audience. He uses terms with which Festus could relate. And then he turns his attention toward Agrippa. And he says, he knows about all this. This wasn't done in secret. This wasn't done in a, in a corner. Uh, during the first century, there were a whole lot of political messiahs, right? They would lead a, a revolt against Rome. They'd get a few followers. They would charge against Rome. They would be killed, slaughtered, and fade into obscurity. The, the account of Jesus is the opposite of those people. And in verse 27, the moment had arrived to pose a very personal question. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Now, when we share about Jesus, it should never be cookie cutter, right? One size fits all, but instead it's tailored to the people that, that we know. And it may take moments like this, or maybe days, weeks, even years. But eventually you get to a point of decision. And Paul knew that that moment had arrived between him and Agrippa. Now, Agrippa's response means either, I'm almost persuaded to be a Christian. And that's either serious or sarcastic, although sarcastic is much more believable. Or do you think you can persuade me to be a Christian in so short a time? Now, again, Paul isn't responsible for the results, and neither are we. We're responsible for sharing the message accurately. Now, Agrippa was flanked by two people that, that personified the dilemma that he was in, right? On one side, there's Festus. Now, Festus was lower in rank than he, but he was older. And he just called Paul a Looney Tunes. And, uh, you know, if, if Agrippa said he believed, maybe, maybe Festus would think he's crazy too. And on the other side, there's his sister and all the... And, and he knew, he had to know that his behavior with her was completely out of line. But he didn't want to give up control. Right? So peer pressure and that desire to remain captain of his own ship squashed a response of faith. But we're not responsible for the results. And Paul, in verse 29, he has this final, sincere response. He says, you know, whether the path to faith in Jesus is easy for you or difficult, I pray that all of you will be like me, at peace with God through faith in Jesus. Except I wouldn't wish imprisonment on any of you. What a kind, kind thing to say. You know, in such a short time, Paul spoke the truth in love. He didn't compromise because of, of his audience. He addressed objections, and he showed that he really cared for them. What a model for us. And the interview's over, right? The show's over. The, the royalty left. Paul goes back to his cell. And as they're leaving, they talk and they go... 
we're back where we started from. This guy is obviously innocent, but he's appealed to Caesar, and so next week we find out about that journey. More unfair treatment. I mean, this is now like quadruple jeopardy for, for uh, Paul, and he's, he's proven innocent every single time. But yet more opportunities, more opportunities to share Jesus. So as we look at this, the very first thing is how have we responded to the gospel? Have we responded with faith that leads to repentance, like a real 180 toward Jesus and leaving those former things behind? And like Kurt said, our, our life demonstrates change, not perfection. We're not completely conformed to the image of Jesus until we're with him, right? Then look for opportunities to share your story along with the gospel, both together. Trust me, they'll come up fast. If you ask, the opportunities will be there. And know the people that you're going to speak with. Know their culture, the way that they think, the way they do things, their language. Okay? Uh, it's amazing that God, who loves the people that we love and want to share Jesus with, loves them more than we do. Yet he has committed to us. I wouldn't do that, right? I wouldn't commit the, the sharing the words of life to humans. We're too unreliable. But that's exactly what he's done. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful responsibility and privilege, and it's a motive for us to do our homework. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we thank you for the people who shared you with us. And they may come to mind right now. Lord, might we be those people for others. Thank you for your continued work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We really hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. We also hope that you're able to join us again next week as we continue studying the powerful truths that God has revealed to us in the book of Acts. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we are so glad that you are a part of the family.